Our scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with, with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law. And it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to remember something that I think all of you have experienced if you're parents. Remember the first time your child came to you with a picture? Probably was a picture with crayons being used. Maybe they came home from preschool or elementary school, or maybe they just came out of their bedroom. And the picture was a picture of the family. And you looked at the picture and you thought, do we really look that bad? Right? <laughs> or they drew a picture of the dog, and the dog didn't even look like a dog. And you made over the picture and uh, said how wonderful it was, but you looked at it and really you didn't recognize yourself, right? You, you didn't see yourself in the picture. The child was imagining how to communicate his or her family. And at that point in that child's life, of course, the skills that he or she had were, were limited. Might not have got a whole lot better if they grew up, but they couldn't do a completely accurate drawing of you. I want to suggest something, just like John Calvin suggested, that whenever we try to create an image of God or describe what God is like, we are actually, he said, like a nurse in a nursery speaking to a child. And when we do that, we lisp. In other words, we don't use words completely. Instead of saying, Father, we say, Dada. And the list goes on. Why, said Calvin? Because we can't accurately capture God. As wonderful as words are, they're really pretty inadequate. They're great, they're grand, and that's why we use what is called anthropomorphic language. 
We use language concerning individual human beings and we try to translate that into the way God is. We speak of God as a friend, as the scripture does. We speak of God as a father. We speak of God as the lion of the tribe of Judah. We speak of God in a variety of ways that are creaturely, right? But we don't mean that Jesus Christ is actually a woolly, four-footed creature, a lamb. It's an analogy to try to get to something. When we speak not of the human characteristics of God, but of his grandeur, where do we go? The psalmist does this all the time. We go to the heavens. We look at the expanse of the heavens and we say, this is bigger than I could imagine. And my, it was a lot bigger than they could imagine back then. Now we know from astronomy how huge it is. So we use that image concerning the greatness of God. And every single one of them, however powerful they may be, they fall short. They are, you know, incomplete. So I pause for a moment. And I ask you, what is your image of God? It's, it's a real question. Think about it. How do you see God? I'm not sure what image is in your mind, but you probably have one. However meaningful it is to you, it falls short. I also know that from listening to people's image of God or idea of what God is like, you frequently experience two extremes. The one extreme is that God is kind of like this benevolent grandfather who gives you everything you want. And the other is a God that's a God of judgment who is actually looking to punish you for misdeeds. A God of wrath. You know what the reality is? Both are true. And neither contradicts the other. Because the comprehensive nature of God includes all those things and more. But today, I want to pause to focus on one part of the characteristic of God. God, as much as he loves, is also a God of unspeakable wrath. And you see it in these passages. 15, 16, 17, and 18. What do we see in these passages? Well, first of all, I want to suggest that these passages are an answer to what has preceded them. In chapter 6, in particular, verse 9, remember the image that we thought about of the saints under the altar, said to be the souls of the martyrs? And what were the saints under the altar, the souls of the martyrs crying out? They were crying out, how long, God? How long, O Lord? How long will we suffer? Chapter 15, 16, 17, and 18 is an answer, but it's not the kind of answer you want or expect. It's not an answer that says three more weeks, three more years, 30 more years, another millennium. The answer is, 
God is eventually going to judge, finally, in the future, wickedness and evil completely. Because God is the judge. So take hope in that, saints, says the book of Revelation. God will eventually judge. As these chapters unfold, we have some really horrific images of God's wrath. It is said that there are seven angels, or there are are angels, seven angels, and seven plagues that are poured out upon the earth. These plagues, they do have a resemblance to the plagues that were put on Egypt during the time of Moses and the Exodus. The first plague is painful sores that are all over the body. And they are on the bodies of those who have the mark of the beast. In other words, those who have already bowed down to the beast and refused to follow Christ, they are stricken with these sores. And they cry out in agony, but they refuse to repent. The second plague is that the sea, the large sea, is turned to blood. And everything in this massive sea dies. All the creatures, all the fish. You can imagine them washing up on the, so- on the shore. The third plague is the rivers and the springs from all over the earth. And that illustrates, it seems, pure water. People got their water from springs and rivers. And the pure water, it too, becomes blood. And the fourth plague is scorching heat. The sun, which is our friend that gives us light, that gives growth to our plants, that sun becomes the enemy of the earth. And the scorching heat just is oppressive. And people cry out under the withering heat, but they refuse to repent. The fifth plague is that the earth is plunged into absolute darkness. I don't know if you've ever been in absolute darkness for a protracted period of time. If you haven't, that probably means you haven't lived in Alaska, right? If you go to Alaska, there are certain periods of the year, and I have family there, I don't know how they survive it, where the sun never comes up. There's a mild glow in the sky at a certain point, and that's it. You're in complete darkness. I can't imagine what it would have been like to live in Alaska before we had power. And all you had were candles. Suicide rates are incredibly high in regions like that. Darkness covers the earth. And people cry out but refuse to repent. The sixth plague is that the waters of the Euphrates, the great river in the Middle East, dry up. And of course, that's not a good thing in terms of the vegetation, in terms of irrigation. But there's something more going on with the drying up of the great Euphrates. It allows the kings who are against the main nations to come across and invade the nations from the east to the west. And the seventh plague is thunder and lightning and earthquake and hail. And it's poured out torrentially on Babylon. Now let's remember that much of the language in the book of Revelation is figurative. 
So it's not really Babylon. Babylon at this point was not a threat to anyone. It was virtually gone. But the image of Babylon is the image that people who understood the Old Testament would have immediately attached to. Oh yes, Babylon. The great and mighty city. Thunder and lightning and earthquake and hail are poured out. And Babylon literally splits and splinters into pieces. And the merchants that are on the sea see it happen and they cry out. They weep and they wail because Babylon has been destroyed. And of course their commerce has been intercepted. Because Babylon was the the center of their commerce. The sea captains wail at the sight. Then we shift to another chapter. And in this chapter, we see a woman. Remember the last time we saw a woman in the book of Revelation? She was beautiful. She was covered in the light of the sun. Clothed, as one translation says, in the light of the sun. And she wore a crown of stars. And she was pregnant. She was pregnant. And there was a beast after her. And when the child was born... The beast who wished to devour it, that beast was robbed of his prey as God took the child away to heaven. This woman, this woman's entirely different. This woman is the whore of Babylon. This woman, it's a picture of a whore sitting on many waters with kings. These kings were intoxicated. They were intoxicated by the wine of her adultery. And get this, just blood-curdling image. She and they were drunk. She was drunk on the blood of martyrs. By the way, this is not so much the horror a statement about sexual immorality, although it is. It's a much bigger image. Whoredom represents at its baseline the twisting of what is righteous and holy and good. What is absolutely beautiful is used for profit. Whoredom is a violation of the image of God in another person. And it manifests itself not just in sexuality, and actually hardly in sexuality when you compare it to the other forms of whoredom. It manifests itself when human beings enslave other human beings. When human beings are physically or emotionally abusive to other human beings... The image of God is sullied or nearly wiped out. Or when we destroy the beauty of the earth and mar the creation that God has given us. Or when we suppress the poor and treat them as second-class citizens and mar the image of God in them because they're not as good as us. This could be five sermons. What does whoredom look like? 
But in summary, whoredom is to take what is righteous and holy and good and to twist it into evil. You realize we have no pure evil in our hands. All we have is what God has created as good. And then we have the ability to make it evil by twisting it. That, in effect, is what sin is. By the way, here's something else that happens. Next. An image that's quite a bit different. An angel coming down from heaven. And this angel has great authority over all the earth. As a matter of fact, his presence literally illuminates the earth with splendor. And he's shouting in a mighty voice, Fallen is Babylon. Or in other words, the end has come. I want to read you the words um, that are spoken by the angel. In chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Come out of her, my people. So that you will be, you will not share in her sins. So that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her a much, as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. My friends, that's, that's the wrath of God on wickedness. And it's real. Woe, woe to you, great city. You dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold. Precious stones and pearls in one hour. Such great wealth has been brought to ruin. The judgment of God. It's an appropriate end for Babylon. And it reveals something of the character of God. Namely, his justice. We have arbitrary divisions in our Bibles called chapters. But you know how this section actually ends? It doesn't actually end at the end of chapter 18. In my opinion, it ends partway through chapter 19. Why do I say this? Because those saints who have heard this and seen this, leap to their feet, so to speak, to shout the praises and the righteous judgments of God. 
the beginning of chapter 19, it is unmitigated worship. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne. Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, both great and small. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen and bright and clean was given her to wear. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lord Almighty, God Almighty reigns. It does seem interesting, doesn't it? That the end of this apocalyptic, wrathful period of time, the saints launch into worship. What does this all mean? A lot. More than we could unpack. But let me suggest a few things. It means that evil will finally be vanquished by God. That is unmistakably clear. It will someday happen in the future. How long, the martyrs say? God doesn't give them a time, but it will happen. The second, as we've already mentioned, is that evil is a twisting of good. That's why we're given the image of the whore of Babylon. Third, what we realize when we read the book of Revelation is that evil is a tool, a tool in the hand of Satan, an instrument to destroy the creation of God. Or to put it another way, evil in our world, evil in our world is directed by Satan and his minions not necessarily for the purpose of destroying people. Yes, it is. But for the purpose of getting at the ultimate enemy who is God. When Satan destroys and mars and twists what is good and beautiful and righteous and holy, it's an affront to God. And he does it with people over and over again to spite the image of God. That's what evil is says the book of Revelation. That's why in the end, the person who suffers the most and is annihilated is Satan himself. Evil is the reason why the martyrs have died. Evil is the reason why persecution happens and eventually it will come to an end. Here's the good news. The good news is that those who follow the Lamb are redeemed from the judgment. The judgment of God. When evil is finally conquered, worship breaks forth. This is the end of the story. This is the final chapter of judgment against sin. But we're not there yet. We see God's judgment periodically, but we're looking ahead to the final judgment. 
you've probably heard the phrase, already, not yet. Already the justice of God has come. It has come to us in the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's why we can pronounce over and over again at one funeral service after another that we do in this church. Christ is risen and we too will live because death cannot conquer those who follow the Lamb. The eternal nature of our souls is sealed by the promise of God. And though it seems like interminable evil, it is not. We will be raised. And all those who follow the Lamb will be. And there will be an absolute triumph of grace eventually in this world that's darkened by sin. So how do we wait? How do we wait in this period of time where the final judgment has not yet arrived? I think the book of Revelation tells us from beginning to end we wait in worship. In the midst of evil, in the midst of things going wrong, we worship God who will bring everything to a conclusion. We worship honestly. Have you ever read the Psalms? I mean, really read the Psalms and gone through them? Realize how many songs of lament are in the Psalms where the psalmist is speaking on his own behalf and on the behalf of the people and saying, God, how long? When are you going to finally fix this? When is your judgment going to come? That's okay. You might not think of it this way, but that's worship. That's what the Psalter is. It's a songbook of worship. It's for you personally. It's for us corporately to cry out to God. We're suffering, God. How much longer? That's how we wait, honestly. How else do we wait? In worship. As we wait, we relinquish justice and vengeance to God. We say, God, you're in charge, and we acknowledge it. God, you are going to bring a final end to evil, and we turn that over to you. In the meantime, in the meantime, we follow you. With all the severity of our lives, with all the persecution that may come, with the possibility of martyrdom, we follow you as we worship the Lamb. In worship, we honor God and his righteousness. And in worship, we anticipate God and his justice. Have you noticed how many of the themes I just mentioned are present in our music? Whether hymns or contemporary worship, those themes come through over and over again. And finally, in worship, we give thanks for redemption. We give thanks for the fact that the final story of judgment does not include our names. We give, fact, we give thanks for the fact that we have been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. We give thanks that our lives are eternally secure in his promises, which are forever. That's a wonderful thing. Right in the midst of the judgment, while it's going on, the saints rejoice and we worship as we wait. 
I know that on many days, I want a complete answer. When I ask, like the saints have for many years, how long? I want a date. I want a year. I want months. But I don't have it. Instead, what I have is a loving God who calls me into relationship with him and promises that eventually he will make it all right. And I trust in that loving God who's given me redemption through his son. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you that our minds and our words are inadequate to express your greatness. The wonder of your beauty, the intensity of your wrath. Lord, if our minds were good enough to completely express who you are, we would turn you into an idol, a genie, a person that we control instead of you controlling the universe. So Lord, even when we're frustrated that justice is not yet here, we thank you that we're not in charge. And we pray as we walk with you, Lord, you would give us the faith and the joy of worship to remember that our times are in your hands, that this world is yours and in your hands, and that someday you will bring complete restoration to all things. We look forward to that day. And as we wait, make us patient and make us hopeful. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.